trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, just a friendly reminder here. All that official propaganda wouldn't be necessary if they were actually winning. So don't feel discouraged. Come on, step up. Come with me. Join me in the wrong think zone and let's uh, let's explore what's happening in our world today. I have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. They include HSLAmmo.com, also MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and GarageDoorProServices.com. Fantastic people there to uh, do a fantastic job, and uh, all of them are worthy of your business if you need their particular product or service, or maybe you know someone who does. All right, where to begin? Where to begin? First of all, I just want to tip my hat to everybody who is speaking out and and doing what they can to speak the truth in a time where such things are are risky. And and I understand it's, you know, it's it's not an easy thing to do, but thank heavens for those who do it. And and I'm very grateful for for anyone who who can find their voice. I I'm, I'm going to look particularly there's two individuals I'd kind of like to highlight. Um, one is Matt Walsh who you may know from, I think it's from the Daily Signal, who has been, uh, he has been one of the foremost voices in terms of the, the culture war. You know what I'm talking about? He's one of the people who's dared to speak the truth. His, his movie, What is a Woman, has, uh, has caused, you know, great consternation to, to some <laughs> and, and not enough to others. But he's also, he, he has had a, an impact here, particularly on the, the prospect of um, the medical community under what it calls gender-affirming care, mutilating children. And I'm talking like beginning sex change operations in very, very young kids and teenagers. And Vanderbilt uh, University Medical Center, which uh, Matt lives in, in uh, Tennessee, Apparently, he shone the light of truth on them, and uh, wow, you want to talk about some cockroaches scurrying for, for the, you know, the shadows. Apparently, Vanderbilt has taken enough heat, and especially after uh, someone, I, I think it was Project Veritas, caught one of the, the, one of the people from Vanderbilt Medical Center talking about, this is such a profitable thing. And if you look at the numbers, well, how many, uh, you know, how many gender-affirming clinics were there, say, 10 years ago? And it was actually very, very few. But now, it's a growth industry. And, and apparently a very lucrative one. And look, this is not to minimize that, that there are young people out there who are, are having some very serious struggles, particularly like with gender dysphoria. I think that, uh, yes, they are in fact struggling. But... To, to turn that into a, a money-making thing where, well, we're going to have to have you back in, you know, a couple times a month for your hormone treatments or, you know, prepping you for your, your surgery, top or bottom or whatever, and all the follow-up that goes with it, that gets expensive. And, and, and it is, that's to say nothing of the morality <clears throat> of mutilating a young person who is, is clearly in a state of confusion and has, I'm just, I just got to come out and say it, is dealing with mental issues. 
There, there is, there's something that's not right. In the same sense that a person who has anorexia or bulimia looks at themselves and sees their body image as something very different from what the reality actually is. Well, the anorexic is starving to death. She's looking in the mirror and seeing herself and going, man, I'm so fat. If only I could lose weight. And of course, when you speak up against these things, you invite the, the wrath of the entire woke apparatus. And boy, have they come after Matt Walsh with, uh, with a vengeance. But he has stood firm. In fact, his response, they, they lately tried to cancel him, uh, taking something he had said out of, out of context. He was talking about, you know, historically people used to marry much younger. And he just made the comment that, you know, people marrying at age 16 at one point was a fairly normal thing in American society. I mean, when you consider that, you know, you were, if you got past 40 years of age, that was considered, you know, a ripe old age. Yeah. And he made the comment that uh, it stands to reason that they would marry young and uh, these girls would be, you know, particularly by the time they they hit their mid to late teens would be, you know, very uh, fertile in terms of of childbearing. Now, that was twisted into, "Eh, he supports, you know, sex with underage girls, Eh," you know, oh, the distortion. And, of course, what what they want Matt to do is to walk it back. Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you misunderstood. You know what his response was? Forgive the language. He told him, piss off. He goes, you're not going to intimidate me. In fact, he pointed out something that that is worth remembering, whether you intend to to speak boldly on the subjects he speaks on or, or there's something else where you have to speak the truth. No one can cancel you without your consent. You have to agree to play by the rules and, okay, surrender and abase yourself before them. And basically, you have to show up for your own struggle session. Don't do it. You can choose not to. And frankly, there's nothing that enrages the woke mob more, and I mean in the right way, than realizing we can't control this guy. So that's something to keep in mind. And, and I got to give kudos to, to Matt Walsh for, for, first of all, for standing up as he has, and he's taken a lot of brickbats for it, but he has stood firm, and I think he has shown this is the way you handle that kind of criticism. You don't show weakness. You don't apologize. Look, if you've done something wrong, yes, you should apologize for it and fix it. But this is a case of weaponized guilt. You don't have to apologize when someone is demanding, you need to feel bad so that I can have power over you. Never forget that. All right. Second individual that I want to to highlight is uh, a wonderful writer and blogger, and, uh, and content creator uh, here in Idaho. And his name is Brian Allman. Brian runs the Gem State Substack. And he is, he, I, I really love, first of all, I love his thinking process. I think he, he's actually a very clear thinker. He's very fair and even-handed in how he approaches topics. Well, recently, Brian was, uh, he, he applied to, for an open position on the library board in the town of Eagle, where he lives. And you would think, okay, well, that's no big deal. I mean, come on, as long as he's running for governor or something. No, just, uh, you know, a place on the library board. And it was approved. But because he has written about freedom, because he has has written in in terms that are favorable to not only freedom, but also still understanding that there is right and wrong, and he's not a spittleflinger. This guy is 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 nothing like like Alex Jones. But the woke mob caught wind. What? We have someone who is, is not, you know, as woke as we? That, that has been, uh, the, the library board has agreed to appoint to their board. And so they started this campaign. 
and and it's it's a very coordinated campaign. Well, we just think he would bring chaos. We would think he is an extremist to, to come on. He wants to ban books. It's crazy. But I got to say, Brian handles it very well, too. Um, he Because uh, when you make those kinds of, of uh, communications to an official government body, there's freedom of information. And so he requested, can I see who was it who, who was saying all this stuff? And they gave him the emails unredacted. So he saw the names of, of the people. And, and to his credit, he didn't go out there and dox them or otherwise, you know, publicly try to humiliate them for it. In fact, he did something that I thought was even more impressive, and that is he extended an invitation. Look, if you have concerns, come sit down and have a cup of tea with me. That's magnanimous. That is what real leadership looks like. And the whole tempest in a teapot of, well, you know, but he's an extremist and he's done stuff with the Idaho Freedom Foundation. It's This is the, the greatest irony that I have faced since I moved back to Idaho is how how much antipathy there is toward people who are actually working toward limiting government and and protecting your personal freedom. And not just their own, but everybody's freedom. The Idaho Freedom Foundation has, has done marvelous work. And they are one of the most hated organizations, according to the legacy press and, and many of the people in politics. Why? Well, it's because the principles that they're standing on limit the power of those people who are power seekers and opportunists and who really want to have control over everybody else around them. And so everything they do, everything they touch, it's extreme. Oh, it's so extreme. A bunch of extremists just out there doing extreme things and they're destroying our, our democracy. Where have we heard that before? So my kudos to the, the people who are standing up, to Matt Walsh, to Brian Allman, and to, to anyone else who in, in small ways or big ways is finding the courage to speak the truth in the face of some mighty opposition, which is seeking to cancel you or otherwise punish you for, for varying from their orthodoxy. Keep up the good work. Take heart. You're not alone. And, you know, it's sad that we live in a time where, where you have to pay a price, where you have to be willing to suffer for your beliefs if you want to be a, a speaker of truth. But the world needs more speakers of truth. We need more people willing to shine a light into the darkness. And I appreciate everybody who's doing it. I'll try to do my part as well. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And thank you to Garage Door Pros located in St. George, Utah. I've had uh, the owner, Seth Schultz, on the uh, show before. I hope to have him back on again. I know he's a busy guy. But the bottom line is this is a local company to St. George, also to Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona, where if you need installation service or repair on your garage door, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial, talk to these guys. Garage Door Pros. Go to their website, Garage Door Pro Services. Call them at 435-525-2773. I can promise you they will take care of you in a way that, uh, that you've not seen before. You will experience positively outrageous good service. 
garagedoorproservices.com. So I'd like you to think about where we were at this time last year. There was a lot of pressure being brought to bear. This is when all the mandates, you will get the shot or, you know, you'll lose your job. And isn't it interesting that uh, in, the, in the last year, the science, I'm putting that in air quotes, sure has changed a lot, hasn't it? I think it has a lot to do with the midterm elections. I think you see panic on the part of the party of chaos that's been, you know, trying to force everything on us and destroy the energy sector and destroy the economy. They're freaking out. They know their day of reckoning is coming. And if I can be honest, I kind of wonder if we will even get to the point where we're allowed to have these midterm elections next month. I know that sounds crazy, but there are desperate people desperately trying to hold on to power and they've clearly shown that, uh, you know, right and wrong has no bearing on the situation. We need that power. We'll do whatever it takes. But you got to wonder, are we reaching that tipping point? Are there people finally starting to get it? And I've got a great article here from Julie Pones. This is from the, uh, the uh, Brownstone Institute website, brownstone.org. What if the truth never comes out? Pretty interesting take here. Julie says, this is the question that seems to be on the minds of many these days. The attempt to reach zero COVID COVID rather, was a colossal failure. Original claims of mRNA vaccine efficacy have, been reported, have reportedly been shown to be based on falsified data. Hey, YouTube, you keep removing my, uh, my uh, this is between me and YouTube here, but uh, you guys keep removing my content because I share stuff like this. So here's another one. I hope you guys ate your Wheaties. You're going to be busy anyway. Julie Poness says, excess mortality is spiking around the globe. The Canadian government finally admits they have a multi-million dollar contract with the World Economic Forum for traveler digital ID. This is all coming out. What was fiction and then conspiracy theory is now reality. And Julie says, many people believe we're approaching a tipping point, that we're on the verge of a revelatory storm, that the truth is finally coming out. And yet, most people still believe in the narrative, still cling to the idea that lockdowns and masking were necessary and effective, that their questioning friends are unstable anti-vaxxers, that government is noble and mainstream media unimpeachable. And from the files of the truly unfathomable, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario is now urging doctors to prescribe drugs and even psychotherapy to their non-compliant patients. She's right, by the way, that's a, that is a legit news story. If someone has vaccine hesitancy, here are some of the uh, psychotherapy options you might recommend to them or drugs to get, their, get them right in their thinking. It's getting pretty serious. But she says that tipping point is hardly a sure thing. What if we never reach it? What if the guilty are never held to account? What if we forget only to transgress again and again? Anecdotes of the harms of the last two years are palpable, but they're ignored. Patients complain of symptoms their doctors won't acknowledge. Citizens tell story the media ignores. Family members try to open dialogue only to be shut down. So the stories are told, but for the most part, they aren't heard. She says, I recently interviewed Trish Wood, who moderated the citizens hearing about the harms of our public health response to COVID-19. She wrote that a week later, she still felt shaken by the magnitude of what she heard. The damage done to careers, families, and children by the blinkered approach of public health experts. She heard the stories of doctors who were silenced when trying to advocate for patients. 
People whose lives were forever changed by vaccine injury. And most tragically, stories like those of Dan Hartman, whose teenage son died following mRNA vaccination. Trish wrote powerfully about the importance of taking account of embedding the acknowledgement of those harms in our collective moral conscience. And Julie Ponez says her words are, dare I say, reminiscent of Eli Weasel's. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, at a time when the world was so morally injured, so eager for a new start, Auschwitz survivor Eli Wiesel saw it as his responsibility to speak for those who had been silenced. At a time when most could not bear to remember, Wiesel could not bear to forget. He wrote, I believe firmly and profoundly that whoever listens to a witness becomes a witness. So those who hear us, those who read us, must continue to bear witness for us. Until now, they're doing it with us. At a certain point in time, they will do it for all of us. End quote. And Julie Ponez says, Weasel's words are hauntingly poignant for our time. They tell the stories of the injured, knowing they will be ignored, who advocate for patients only to be censured, who highlight the children who died by suicide rather than from COVID-19, only to be silenced. They do it because they believe that a cry in the dark will eventually be heard, and even if it isn't, they feel obligated to testify on behalf of those who can't speak for themselves. Now she says, I apologize if my reference to Nazi atrocities offends you. My aim in making the comparison is not to be irreverent, but purposeful. True, the atrocities of our time are not identical to those of the 30s and 40s. At least the 30s and 40s in Europe. But they don't need to be to learn important moral lessons from them. Weasel's promise of never again was not just to past victims of atrocities, but to all future victims as well. This is how the battle will be fought now, whether the truth about the last two years will be dragged into the open or revised into oblivion. We're already seeing backpedaling among our officials whose mishandling of the pandemic is undeniable. But she says that's beyond my point. We have relied for too long on institutions to do the remembering for us to generate moral responsibility on our behalf. In the era of Truth and Reconciliation Commission, personal accountability has been trained out of us. We were taught to believe that institutions would act as our surrogate moral conscience, taking account and making apology for us. She says, I don't deny the importance of collective responsibility, but sometimes moral injury is personal, done by individuals to one another, and the accountability needs to happen in kind. Now, there are a few who are not personally complicit in the harms of the last two years. There are few, she says, who are not personally complicit. And the temptation to put, the armor on, to put on the armor of the bystander is powerful. To say, well, we weren't involved or we had no choice. But complicity is a form of moral action. Sometimes the most powerful there is. Wouldn't it be lovely if our moral slate could be wiped clean, if we could be absolved of all the hurt we've caused? but this doesn't honor the truth and that's not the way we exercise our humanity. And so she asks the question, what if the truth never comes out? And it may not. But if it doesn't, it shouldn't be because we ignored those crying out to us, because we stood behind a shield of compliance and deference. The road back to freedom, unity, and reconciliation starts with testimony and accountability. And she says we need to take those first few painful steps now. Again, this is uh, Dr. Julie Poness, who teaches at uh, Ontario's Huron University College. That's powerful. And it's, it's maddening to see the politicians who do this. 
You know, I don't know if Ammon Bundy is is going to uh, prevail in his quest to is running for governor of Idaho. But I'll tell you, his campaign ad, which uh, calls out current governor Brad Little, who's running for reelection, calls him out on his gaslighting and his insistence. We never locked things down. We never had people arrested. Oh, governor, we have the receipts. But it's just one example of a public official who would rather lie to your face than show any kind of personal accountability or responsibility. And again, it's the whole, well, we we had no choice. But that's a load of crap. They saw no other choice. They, They refused to look at any other choice but to grab more power and to try the one size fits all approach, something that had never been done in the history of pandemics before. Shame on them. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again to HSL Ammo and also to lifesavingfood.com for being sponsors of this program. So I'm going to dig into a topic that is likely to cause a bit of discomfort. At least it did for me. And I feel like, you know, I've, I've built fairly thick skin over the years, but it's disturbing. And it's, it's about inflation. I know you're hearing that word. It's, it's worked its way into a lot of people's vocabularies here lately. But right now, we hear a lot of talk and, and you know, a lot of deflection. Well, you know, it's really not as bad as everybody says. I'm sorry, but every time I go to the grocery store, like every time, couple times a week when I'm in there, I'm paying attention. I'm seeing the prices go higher and higher on various items. I'm also seeing the quantities get smaller and smaller. It's a reality. And this is to say nothing. If you talk to anybody who's in the building trades, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, what we were paying for lumber, what we were paying for, you know, tools, whatever. Everything is getting more expensive. Well, Thorsten Polite has an excellent article. This is from the Mises Institute, Mises.org, on inflation, high inflation, and hyperinflation. And this is a great read, not only from the standpoint of it'll give you a better understanding of what inflation is, but it also gives a pretty clear picture of where we are headed. That could be a little bit uh, daunting for some people to face, but, you know, how... How, do you want the truth? Do you want to know what's going on? This is, this is one of the better articles to help point you in the right direction. Thorsten Polite says, The word inflation is heard and read everywhere these days. However, since different people sometimes have a very different understanding of inflation, here is a definition. Inflation is the sustained rise in the prices of goods across the board. Now, he says, This definition conveys that inflation means that the increase in price of goods is not just a one-off, but permanently. And that not just some goods prices go up, but all. So how does inflation rise? Well, economists have two explanations ready. The first explanation is the non-monetary explanation of inflation. According to this theory, sharply rising energy prices lead to inflation, and this is referred to as cost-push inflation. Or, inflation is caused by excess demand, The demand for goods exceeds the supply, causing prices to rise. The second explanation for inflation is monetary. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, as U.S. economist Milton Friedman put it. And that's right. 
because in an economy without money, there simply is no inflation. So you can see inflation has something to do with money. It can be demonstrated theoretically that an increase in the money supply leads to an increase in goods prices. The prices of goods will be higher compared to a situation where the money supply has not been expanded. Now, there is quite some empirical evidence that increasing the amount of money over time is associated with rising goods prices, be it in the form of consumer goods prices and or asset prices like stocks and real estate. He says, with a view to current developments in the world, however, both explanations can be meaningfully connected. The energy price shock triggered by green policies, which has many other commodity prices skyrocketing, combined with lockdown-related shortages in many commodities and goods markets, are hitting a huge monetary overhang that central banks have built up over the past few years. And it is precisely this monetary overhang that makes it possible in the first place that the goods price shock can translate into inflation. In other words, further increases in goods prices across the board. So from this perspective, it's the excessive monetary overhang that's responsible for goods price inflation. Without it, this kind of inflation wouldn't have been possible. Without it, there would be no continued increase in all goods prices. It should therefore be emphasized at this point that when talking about inflation it makes sense to distinguish between goods price inflation and money supply inflation. Goods price inflation is the symptom, and money supply inflation is its cause. That's a really good explanation, by the way. He says, we know that inflation means a loss of purchasing power of money. When there's inflation, you get fewer and fewer goods in exchange for your money. In today's unbacked paper money system, the fiat money system, inflation is chronic, a daily plague, so to speak. The reason? State-sponsored central banks, which have the monopoly on money production, have set themselves the goal of delivering inflation of 2% per year. Now, that may seem acceptable at first glance, but not at second glance. Because in doing so, central banks do not preserve the purchasing power of money over time. They deliberately reduce it. So they're not currency guardians, but they're currency destroyers. And inflation of 2% may seem small, but over time, it leads to considerable reduction in the purchasing power of money. For example, with an inflation rate of 2% per year, the loss of purchasing power is 9% after 5 years and 18% after 10 years. Inflation of 5% will already have destroyed the purchasing power of money by 22% after 5 years and by 39% after 10 years. And with 10% inflation, 38% of, it, of purchasing power is obliterated after 5 years and 61% after 10 years. Those are some daunting numbers, man. What is high inflation, he asks? Well, there is no single definition for that, but it makes sense to speak of high inflation when goods prices increase by 5, 10, or 15% a year. Now, we speak of hyperinflation when the rate of increase in the price of goods is very, very high and continues to increase over time. We could also say when it starts galloping. Most modern economics textbooks state that hyperinflation occurs when prices increase by 50% or more per month. That definition goes back to the influential work of U.S. economist Philip Kagan. However, be aware that a price increase of 50% per month implies an annual inflation rate of almost 12,900%. That is frighteningly high. 
It would mean, for example, the price of a cup of coffee would increase from $3 to $390 within a year. In view of the devastating effect of hyperinflation on the purchasing power of money in a very short time, it makes economic sense to to set the threshold much lower. And to speak of hyperinflation already when there's a permanent price increase of, say, 3% per month. So how does hyperinflation occur? Well, the phenomenon of hyperinflation was brought upon the world with unbacked paper money. With fiat money, hyperinflation was and is inextricably linked to fiat money. The only reason the central bank can, simply put, increase the amount of fiat money at any time and by any amount. And that usually happens as currency history rather painfully shows when the state's at war or when it's so over-indebted that it sees no other way of financing its spending than to literally have its central bank print new money. Now, hyperinflation is usually triggered for political reasons. The economist Ludwig von Mises put it succinctly when he wrote in 1923, we have seen that if a government is not in a position to negotiate loans and does not dare levy additional taxation for fear that the financial and general economic effects will be revealed too clearly too soon so that it will lose support for its program, it always considers it necessary to undertake inflationary measures. Thus, inflation becomes one of the most important psychological aids to an economic policy which tries to camouflage its effects. In this sense, it may be described as a tool of anti-democratic policy. By deceiving public opinion, it permits a system of government to continue which would have no hope of receiving the approval of the people if conditions were frankly explained to them. End quote. Wow, does that not sound like our world today? Now, there is much more to this article. And from here, he goes into explaining how inflation escalates into high inflation and hyperinflation. Much, this is really worth your time. I mean, this is worth looking at. And he gives some historical examples, like what happened in Austria in early 1923. Now, you're wondering, perhaps, is hyperinflation imminent? And he says, well, it can't be overlooked that inflation has already turned into high inflation. In July 2022, U.S. consumer goods prices rose by 8.5% compared to the previous year and by a good 9% in the euro area in August. German producer prices shot up a good 37% in August 2022. And this has become possible mainly because, as he said earlier, central banks have created a huge monetary overhang. In the U.S., it's estimated at 15% in the euro area, a similar magnitude. So he has some advice on what to do. He says, my advice is don't trust the official U.S. currencies like the dollar or the euro. And he says, adopt the working hypothesis that the purchasing power of the official currencies will be drastically debased. Now, this is because he's saying the threat of hyperinflation is almost inevitable. In fact, some of these currencies will be debased to the point where they will be a total loss. So he says, keep as little money as possible. It's best to reallocate amounts of money you do not need for current payments, such as time and savings deposits. And he suggests, for example, put them in physical gold and silver in the form of coins and bars. And he says, buy stocks. If you're not an expert, buy a world-diversified stock market exchange traded fund or certificate. Yes, he says, there are other options that greater investment portfolio diversification can make sense. But if if you just leave that money sitting there in the bank... It will continue to shrink away, and eventually it will be worth nothing. I know, that's a a tough one to swallow, but I think he's right. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to give a shout out to my friend Ruben for for passing along the article on uh, inflation, high inflation, and hyperinflation. Of course, that means if you have heartburn right now, you can say, thanks, Ruben. No. It, I appreciate uh, actually Ruben, and, and I have other listeners as well who will send me topics that they come across, articles they come across. I do spend a lot of time combing the internet and looking for good, solid information that can better help us understand where we are and what's going on. But to have other eyes out there looking and, and people, and, and by the way, the people who send me these, these articles, you all know a lot more than I do. Okay, it should be pretty clear. I am I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Never claimed to be, but I really appreciate those who, who can find this good, relevant information. And if you pass it along to me, yes, I will be very, very happy to share it. So, with that in mind, I've got three, three quick articles I want to touch on. I have a full adult strength reality supplement from Brandon Smith. And again, this is if, if you are willing to face some, some economic reality that is not necessarily pleasant. His article is titled, Markets are expecting the Federal Reserve to save them. It's not going to happen. And he explains why. And it's, it's yeah, it, it's disturbing, but he's right. I think his analysis is right on the money. So if you want to know a little bit more about it, click on my show notes. You can find them at thebrianheidshow.com. Also, since it's Columbus Day today, uh, this, this may be the last time you get to celebrate it. After all, cancel culture and the woke mob, well, they have serious beef with uh, Christopher Columbus. And I picked up an article off of AmericanGreatness.com by Macuban Owens. Goodbye, Columbus. It's only because of the principles enshrined in the Declaration of Independence that we even have a basis to criticize the actions of our forebears. He talks a little bit about how, look, this is the federal holiday called Columbus Day, where we honor a man who was once lauded as a great mariner and a courageous explorer whose exploits led to the European discovery of the Americas. But in recent decades, Columbus has been demonized and accused of all manner of atrocities against the indigenous people of the Americas. Now, the attacks on Columbus are part of the broader denigration of Western civilization as racist, exploitative, and imperialistic. In fact, a major source of the assault on both Columbus and Western civilization is a widely used history textbook by the late Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States. Now, you need to understand, Zinn was more of a Marxist polemicist than a legitimate scholar, and the book has been panned even by left-wing historians who express concern about the damage that politicized history could do to their profession. So he goes into some of the critiques against Zinn, but also notes Zinn is hardly the only one who is attacking, you know, Western civilization and particularly the U.S. The, the attack on Columbus, he says, mirrors the broader assault on the United States, which portrays America as irredeemably racist and the indigenous peoples of the Americas as innocent victims of Western crimes, in particular, genocide. Indoctrinated by the likes of Zinn, the pushers of the 1619 Project and their ilk, many young people believe slavery was invented by the United States. Of course, the United States, when it declared its independence from, uh, from Great Britain in 1776, you know, slavery was a worldwide phenomenon. 
African states like the Kingdom of Dahomey and the Ashanti Empire of Western Africa were slaveholders themselves and sold other Africans into the Atlantic slave trade. So although the Declaration of Independence did not end slavery at once, it did make the abolition of slavery a moral and political imperative. And here's the point. As uh, Macuban Owens uh, points out here to, to, to point out the behavior of the Indians and some of the, the atrocities that they were regularly committing and the atrocities committed against them by whites isn't to excuse these crimes or the, or the atrocities on either side, but to place those actions in historical context. And he says, I've argued before, it's only because of the principles enshrined in the Declaration that we can criticize the actions of our forebears. Before that, the rule of conduct for both domestic and foreign policy was described by Thucydides in response to the Athenians in a plea for, to a plea for mercy and justice by the Melians. Melians, rather, justice applies only to equals. As for the rest, the strong will do what they will; the weak will suffer what they must. Interesting article. You can check it out in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's end on a high note today. I know that uh, the last couple of years have been really tough. In fact, I think up until about three years ago, most of us took our mental health or good mental health for granted. Not just our own, but our kids' mental health as well. So Lenore Skenazy, in a piece published on intellectualtakeout.org, recommends the fastest, cheapest child therapy. And, And by cheap, she means it's free. She says, if we agree there's a youth mental health crisis, can we also agree that More therapists is not the only solution. She says, I worry that our leaders automatically gravitate to middle-age solutions, yoga, therapy, meditation, even when they're trying to help kids. And they miss a free, immediate, accessible therapy all kids used to get. Free play. All ages mixing. No electronic devices. Devices, rather. Balls, chalk, jump rope, and voila! transformation, especially if you throw in some big cardboard boxes. Now, we all remember how important our playtime was. That's when we made friends. That's when we invented games and argued and made up and ran and joked and laughed. Those are mental health godsends. So what should parents or what should people do, actually, starting um, right this second? Lenore Skenazy says, parents, consider some easy ways to get your kids back outside. And to that end, she says, here are some tips that I culled from my nonprofit, Let Grow. She suggests take walks with your kids to get them familiar with the neighborhood. Put lots of containers outside for kids to gather things, pour things, mix things, including dirt, water, and anything else they find. Pitch a tent in your yard if you have one. A yard, that is, or come to think of it, a tent. Invest in some good clothing so the cold isn't too cold. Invent some fake errands to get the kids out and about. Oh dear, I want to bake chocolate chip cookies, but we're out of sugar. That's one that has a lot of resonance. Can you put a pile of sand outside? Well, she says, then do so. One mom suggested seeding the sand with treasures like oyster shells or Happy Meal toys or what have you. And you know you have McDonald's toys. Get a bunch of planks for the kids to build with. These can become forts, boats, mazes, and then taken down and used again. Plant tall flowers in a circle around an area the kids can use as their junkyard. Say yes to the mess yourself. Most important of all, she says, go around trying to find other families who might want their kids to play outside too. As for schools, 
While you're waiting for a boatload of therapists, give the kids more playtime. It's easy. How? We'll just keep the school open before or after school for a mixed-age, device-free, loose parts, like she was describing above, playtime. Have an adult supervise, but not organize the games or solve the spats. Let Grow has an implementation guide for a program like that if you'd like, and it's as free as can be. Go to letgrow.org and click on School Programs. But she says you don't necessarily need a guide. Just let parents know their kid can come to school a little earlier and stay later. The kids will figure it out. Bonus, she says we've heard from administrators at schools with play clubs that discipline, discipline problems went down when the amount of time the kids got to spend playing went up. Imagine that. Lenore Skenazy says, look, therapy is great. I've done it myself. I live in New York City. It's practic practically required for years. She says, I've got nothing against all the other new ideas schools are trying to. Breathing exercises, mindfulness, downward dogs. Yeah, 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 all good. But playing is the original social-emotional health curriculum. And did I mention it's free? She says, yes, I did. I know, so I'll stop now. Send the kids out to play. Now, I know, if you live in some, you know, inner-city neighborhood where, you know, the greatest job opportunities, well, I look to see they're looking for a new tail gunner for the school bus. Okay, maybe it's not so safe, but I think most of us have some options at our disposal. One of the clearest memories I have from my childhood, and I, I thank God for my childhood, where we were allowed to go out and play and explore in our neighborhood, and it was just a suburb of Salt Lake City, but... There were ditches to explore, giant snails to be found. If you knew where to look in the window wells of some of the nearby duplexes, uh, you could find turtles, you could find toads. Truly amazing stuff. Once in a while, we'd really get lucky and find a snake. But I always was jealous of my cousins who grew up in the country. They grew up on a farm out in Declo, Idaho, and I thought they were the luckiest kids in the world. Why? Because they had things like a great big collapsing spud cellar to go play in. They had bird's eggs to find. They had mice to chase after and sick their dog on. They could play with BB guns. That was something I didn't get to do so much in the suburbs. Get the kids outside to play. That doesn't mean just kick them out and, you know, let them fend for themselves. Maybe you should go out there and enjoy a little playtime too, but trust me. They will find ways to use that time productively. And here's the tip of the hat to Lenore Skenazy for putting it out there and advising us, let the children play. It's good for them. It might be good for us, too. If you need a little mental health break. This is The Brian Hyde Show.